calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story, and we are here to tell it. Put it simply, it's a culture of decency and respect. It is a culture that respects people and that has some really true core values about the environment, people's relationship to one another at a personal level and also at a societal level. So to me, that's extremely important. It's a much higher mission. And lead by example. If the senior people behave a certain way, speak to people in a certain way, treat them a certain way, show what their priorities are, and demonstrate them not by words, but by deeds. And uh, it's um, uh, a phrase in Latin that that is facta non verba. It means deeds, not words. That's what's important. You know, live the culture yourself, and people will pick up on it. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. In our last episode, Patrick explained the origin of and the philosophy behind the effort curve, later known as the McLaney curve, which grew to have a significant impact on HOK and the profession at large. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, 
Patrick has set his sights on reclaiming the company culture that HOK once had. What step you took to achieve the true collaboration at HOK? Well, I started to communicate with people. There was a weekly pyramid message from me to all employees. And I followed that up with, within the first month, I began to visit each office. And again, my goal was to visit each office at least twice a year, which is a lot. And uh, it meant a lot of travel. And I realized that a big job of mine as the CEO was to communicate. And it's one thing to have a vision and to lead, but if you don't communicate it to everybody, down to the person in every office who makes coffee, they won't get it. They won't understand it. And they'll wonder, well, they're bewildered. Where are we going and why? You know, Mark, people are not stupid. They're not gullible. People get it if you're not telling them the truth. So I began my office visits with a very frank layout of where we are as a firm and what we had to do, including our debt to the bank and our uh, our difficulty in achieving profitability. So as these trips continued, I began to also not just tell them, well, here's what's wrong, but here's what we're doing about it. And here's the progress we've made. Sharing the journey with people was a huge part of it. And the offices that were the best organized and the best run with best led were the ones where I had the most questions from staff. If an office was underperforming or if the leadership was not as sure about uh, how to lead, I found those offices unnaturally quiet. And so I had to encourage people to speak up and ask. I called them ask me anything sessions with the staff. And one particular visit sticks in my memory to our office in Toronto, Canada, where I gave a little speech to all the assembled staff in the office. And then I asked for questions and I and I prefaced it by saying, I love questions. They're the best part of the visits that I have with offices is answering questions. So I really encourage you to ask questions. There are no no dumb questions. Just please let me know anything in it that's on your mind. Silence. Nobody said anything. I asked again. I said, well, okay, who's going to be the first brave person to ask a question? Silence. So finally, I had a, a loony in my pocket. And a loony is a Canadian dollar coin with a picture of a loon on it. And a loon is a water bird. In fact, they have a $2 coin that's called a toonie because it has two loons. So I bribed them. <laughs> so I took this loon out of my loony out of my pocket. I said, okay, I'm going to give this loony to the first person with the courage to ask a question. And a young lady kind of in the back, who I think was an accountant or something, finally put her hand up and I said, yes, a question. And she asked a very milquetoast question of some kind. I answered and I thanked her profusely. And I walked through the audience to the back and gave her her loony. And I got back up to the front. I said, okay, next question. And a young man up at the front said, if I ask a question, will I get a loony? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, no, that actually went just to the first person, but you'll get an attaboy. And so he asked a question. And pretty soon the floodgates opened. Those people were bursting to ask questions, but they didn't have the confidence yeah. to ask. 
And so leaders need to make sure that in their communication, it's not all one-sided. That's only half the job. You will tell people the sky is blue. And the first question you'll get is, is the sky really blue or is it purple? So you need to let them ask their question. And a lot of these things had to do with self-confidence. Were people confident enough in themselves and in me and in their office to ask questions that may reveal, gee, I don't know too much, or gee, maybe my office is underperforming. And these became rather freewheeling sessions. After people got the idea that they could ask literally anything, these were trust-building exercises, basically, that you could ask anything of me, of the CEO, and I would do my best to give you a straight answer, including things that weren't very pleasant. Because even if I said, you know, this office is not profitable, you're underperforming, or you haven't collected a big bill or something, I would say, but, you know, there's signs of improvement. You do have some movement on this project where the client hasn't paid or improving your profitability through measures or steps that you've taken as an office. You need to do more, but you're not paralyzed with fear. You're moving. So people got it like the Washington, D.C. office, which is a very well-led office, there was an avalanche of questions. I mean, everybody had their hand up when they asked her questions. And uh, a one-hour briefing for the staff could turn into a three-hour session. Those were marvelous. Then I would meet with the officers, and usually in the conference room. And then I would usually end up having dinner with the leadership, a smaller group, talking about different things with each group. But just really variations on that same theme. And they also learned that they could ask anything. And there was nothing that was private or confidential except, and I always said this, you can ask me anything, but I won't talk about an HR issue about some person. But I'll talk about our finances, our prospects for collecting money, uh, the profitability or the lack of it in an office and so on. Everything was as transparent as we could get it. and. Our CFO, Bob Pratzel, attended the the large firm roundtable. It's an AIA group. And he attended a CFO large firm roundtable once or twice a year. And most CFOs reported that their firms did not share financial information with staff. So the staff were in the dark, whether the firm was making or losing money or how much they made or anything. And we we, uh, did just the opposite. We shared uh, everything we could possibly share, uh, again, with stopping short on the HR side. And people gradually got confidence that, oh, there are leaders that are telling me the truth, that trust was built. And trust is the first step toward change. If, if people don't trust each other, they, they're not going to extend themselves. So that that had a lot to do with beginning to change the culture in the company. It's just those visits and the frankness, the honesty and the transparency of our conversations. Patrick, you mentioned that some offices were very quick and eager to ask questions and others were silent and almost fearful to ask that question. That was my word, not your word. But could you tell some certain things about certain offices by the way those sessions went? And how did you overcome those? Mark, even before I stood in front of the staff and gave a talk, when I went in the front door into the office, I could tell offices that were not doing well or that were not led well were unnaturally quiet. 
You'll remember when I walked into HOK in St. Louis for my interview with Guido Obata, there was a buzz. Good offices that are well run are filled with energy and people are not afraid to speak out. Offices that are poorly led uh, or that are suffering, that don't have enough work and so on, are unnaturally quiet. I think it's it's a number of factors, but I think people want to keep their heads down and not be too noticeable because maybe they'd be laid off or something like that. But actually, the only real way to get at that is to run toward trouble. You run straight at it. But it did tell me that we had leadership issues in an office where it was unnaturally quiet. And they went on the list as leaders to be re- reviewed by the XCOM and decisions had to be made. Sometimes it was some counseling. Sometimes it was replacing a leader with somebody else. The people in the offices are not the ones that are causing the profits or the losses. It's a leader problem, pure and simple. The young people that are working on the projects will basically do almost anything a leader asks as long as it's reasonable. And it's not their fault if an office isn't making money or isn't performing well. So the people to really focus on, if you want a firm that's going to work well, You've got to stay focused on your leaders and get them to be the best they can be. So, Patrick, from the very beginning, HOK was set up as a corporation, and corporations have stock, company stock, and you used that company stock as a way of reinforcing true collaboration, which sort of sounds a little bit counterintuitive. Can you explain how you did that? It is counterintuitive. Um, uh, In a typical architecture firm, it's a partnership. And partners are invited to join the partnership, and usually they have to put some money in of their own, or maybe they get a loan from a bank or something. At HOK, there were no partners. There were stockholders, shareholders. Well, HOK stock, and again, by the wisdom of the founders, set up as uh, for active employees only. If you left HOK, you couldn't take the stock with you. You had to sell it back. And more importantly, the company was required to buy it back from you at that month's price. Well, the stock would go up if we made profits and retained some of them as retained earnings. The stock would stay flat if whatever we made, we gave away in bonuses and taxes. We we always had to pay our taxes. So uh, as we were growing, it didn't matter too much because the stock did go up with growth. But when we hit a period in the 90s, when the growth had slowed down, the stock was basically flat. That's when we got into difficulty with Kojima, our partner, because their holdings were HOK stock. They got no bonus. So they were unhappy. One of the things that I wanted to do was restore profitability as, as an essential in the firm, not a would be nice, but essential. And when we, when we began to make a profit, we, would, we were also careful not to bonus away every last penny of it, but to retain some of it in the firm. And we began to use that profit to do things like pay off the bank. Well, every penny of profit that we made and retained in the firm caused our stock to go up a little bit. And after the first year of being CEO, our stock took a very nice jump. And I noticed in that year, I think it was 2003, that our stock actually outperformed the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And I hit upon this idea that I wanted people to buy stock, 
And when stock was offered to an emerging leader, they would always say, why should I invest in HOK when I can put my money in mutual funds or in a stock market or in a, in a real estate or some other investment? And it became apparent to me that we weren't communicating properly on how well our stock had begun to grow and that the key to it was to communicate in some new way. It's a little bit like a 50% rule. Take the accounting jargon out. So after a couple of years, I personally checked the, the growth of our stock and found that the first couple of years, it outperformed the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And I began to talk about this at stockholders meetings. And then after the third year or so, I asked our controller, Tim Tynan, why don't you make a chart for me showing HOK stock growth from the year 2003 until the present, 2006, and show the, the HOK stock growth versus the Dow? So I began to share that at shareholders meetings. Well, that, there were a whole bunch of questions. How do you calculate the value of HOK stock and so on? That was a great opportunity for imparting some good lessons. How do we value the stock? That's a perfectly good thing. Very simple. HOK stock is based on what's called a book value of a business. In accounting, book value is simply the value of a business according to its books or accounts. Mathematically, it is the difference between a company's total assets and total debts or obligations. So if a company theoretically shut down, sold all of its assets, and paid all of its debts and obligations, the remaining money is the book value that stockholders would receive. And our net worth at HOK was growing. And Tim Tynan would divide that by the number of shares of stock in the hands of HOK shareholders. And let me just say, there's something very egalitarian about being a shareholder. Everybody's share of stock was worth exactly the same dollar value. So if HOK stock went up 10% or 8%, any number you want, everybody got that much more value from their HOK stock. So I began doing this as a roadshow. When I would go to the offices and had those meetings with the staff, I would talk about HOK stock and I would show this chart. And then it would cause a blizzard of questions again. How can I get some? That was a new question. <laughs> and how can I get some was a perfect incentive to say, well, you get some by the judgment of the executive committee. We're the ones that decide who to offer stock to. And it's basically your level of leadership inside the firm. If your leadership is growing, you'll be offered more stock. And leadership is described as not just running an office or a practice or being a extra good project manager, but also for these characteristics, like you're really good for client service. You've got clients that are your friends that follow you that want to give you repeat work, or you have an extraordinary gift in design and you do something really wonderful in the way you approach design, or you're a highly collaborative employee. You like to work with other people and help them succeed. So we succeed as a team. So we began to get this idea that, oh, stock can be a powerful incentive to pull the firm together. Because if you own a share of HOK stock, you really own a share of every office and of every part and piece of the firm. So if you're a shareholder in Atlanta, you also own a piece of San Francisco where I am. And that was actually pretty cool. People liked that idea. 
And uh, then people said, well, okay, you've shown that HOK stock has grown faster than the Dow over the last three years, but I've been told by my financial advisor, three years isn't a good yardstick. You need five and 10 year yardsticks. So we extended it backwards in time. And uh, as each year proceeded, pretty soon we had five-year statistics and then we had 10-year. And I will just say that the HOK stock growth beat the pants off the Dow. There were a couple of years where the Dow had a surge and HOK stock didn't grow as fast. But overall, those two squiggly lines on the chart kept diverging. So people's curiosity about stock was replaced by a thirst for the stock. They wanted it. And they began to understand that it could be a great part of their investment. Oh, if I own some HOK stock and I get enough of it, it will grow and be part of my retirement. And I'll be able to have a, a happy, secure retirement with HOK stock. And I always encourage people in HOK to get themselves a financial planner and get some get some good advice. But that HOK stock ownership in a home and outside investing of some kind, whatever people choose, was a good balanced approach. So by the time I re re repurposed at HOK, I think we had five, 10, 15, and 20 year HOK stock versus the Dow. That is continuing to this day. So it's been a remarkable journey to see how HOK has grown and its markets because we got better at what we did. We learned how to be more consistently profitable. We learned how to be better collectors of our justly earned, hard-earned fees. And that became an incentive, I think, for people to think about HOK as one firm, not just my office. We didn't sell stock in HOK Dallas. We sold stock in HOK. And that's another big incentive to keep people pulled together. Yeah, it sounds like they, with that ownership, they gain a sense of pride or, or a, a greater sense of pride because I'm sure they already had the, the pride. But when they actually own it and they see the direct results of their hard work into this corporation resulting in the stock going up, it gives them a sense of, of, of encouragement and, and pride in the, in the company they work with. Well, it does. And I, I had many people, uh, older employees that had bought stock early on and had held it. Uh, they were nearing retirement saying, you know, this has turned out to be one of the best investments I made. And I wasn't even sure what I was getting when I bought it the first time. And I will just, for me personally, my HOK stock became the largest part of my personal portfolio. But on the other hand, I spent 50 years working as hard as I know how to make that stock worth something. Sure. So it was, I think of it as investing in myself, not just in a company that I don't know. Uh, I know everything about I knew everything about HOK, and I think people began to take it personally. And when people showed up at the shareholders meeting, if you owned one share of HOK stock, you were eligible to attend the annual shareholders meeting, either in person or virtually. And those were really cool meetings because you could have somebody that, that literally made the coffee in an office sitting next to the president or the CEO of the firm. We're all in it together as owners. Patrick, you also used a strategy called core boards. Can you tell us a little bit about core boards and how they work? All of these steps, Mark, though, ask me anything, the stock core boards are the same is to get people to engage with each other. 
in the early days of the firm, when H O and K had the one office in St. Louis, they had informal groups. The designers would get together with Gio or without and talk about design and share stories about, oh, did you know there's a better way to do something? And uh, we did the same thing with the project managers and with the project architects. The marketers would get together and talk about uh, new techniques or a better way to keep track of which clients you contact, Any, anything and everything. So gradually, these four groups that evolved out of this, that we called them core boards because they had they represented core competencies in the firm. That is, the, these are the four pieces that a professional firm needs to have, and that was design, technical architecture, management, and marketing. And design and technical architecture are at the heart of the business. That's actually putting projects together, designing them, and delivering them to clients and contractors, supported by management, project management, and marketing, which is bringing in the work. So these core boards were quite robust in the early days of the firm. And then as the firm grew and proliferated into many offices, the core board idea was lost. It wasn't lost completely, but it was haphazard. It wasn't well thought out and well supported. In fact, uh, at one point, people thought that the management board, which is where if you're a project manager, you're in that, and maybe you get promoted to be a managing principal, and maybe you get promoted onto the XCOM. Everybody thought the management board was the coolest thing going. So most of the board of directors was on the management board. And we decided we needed to rebalance that because each one of those four core competencies has its own special importance. And again, these core boards were not boards in the sense that they had uh, authority. They were advisory. And so uh, we reorganized the core boards, revitalized them, I should say. And every designer was reassigned to the, the design board uh, and the marketers to the marketing board and so on. And the technical board, which used to be called the project architect board, was revitalized by this new person that I brought in, Carl Galeotto, who became the technical leader for the firm. And so each one of these boards had young people in it that were just starting out, uh, that were learning how to be technical architects, that maybe could graduate to be a project architect, which is the senior technical person on a project. But they had a career path that they could aspire to become the technical principal in their office. So these core boards became stepladders, ladders for people that wanted to have a career in the firm in a particular area of the work. And you could be a designer on the design board and also a healthcare specialist, or you could be a technical architect and on, on the technical board, but an aviation specialist. So there was a lot of crossover. And we began to give the core boards tasks. So they had to produce something besides being talking shops. For example, the design board put together an HOK design annual that's published to this day that's the most luscious, beautiful example of, of our work. You can download it to this day from our website, uh, or you can get a paper version. But there are beautiful books. The criteria and the quality of the documentation for that was all developed by the design board. But each board began to spur the others on to be better at their craft. 
And um, I think uh, had a lot to do with not only building up the level of the quality of the experience in the firm and giving people a career path, but because the core boards were advisory, we began to invite them to meet with the board of directors and give us reports every quarter. And these reports sometimes ask the board of directors for some permission to do something or a little funding to do something. And uh, it was basically people engaging with people where we began to see ourselves as I'm not just HOK Dallas, I'm a member of the design board and I get to report to the board of directors. Uh, I'm not just a, a person in San Francisco, I'm a shareholder and I get to go to the shareholder meeting and I, I'm on a core board and the board of directors. So it became a, a rich mix of people engaging with each other. And Mark, when people engage with each other as individuals, the natural thing, they become friends. Instead of those guys in Dallas, it's, oh, it's Dave and Sally and Tim. So people began to be friends across the firm as a result of this. And it was a, just a natural aid to this collaborative HOK culture that we wanted to restore. In order to continue to build your team, your leadership team, you also took key members of the team at HOK on retreats. Can you tell us a little bit about your retreats? Yes. Um, well, one in particular was to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And the program for Puerto Vallarta was not developed by me or the executive committee. We asked a group of emerging leaders from around the firm to develop a program for what we would do when we were there. And uh, these people did a magnificent job, and many of them now uh, have emerged. Several of them are on the executive committee and so on. They're, what they did was nothing short of brilliant. Ricardo Masia, now managing principal in HOK's Chicago studio, who we featured in a previous episode, was one of those emerging leaders who helped coordinate the retreat. We, in planning that, you know, I was going through this same experience in LA, kind of unpacking, why are we doing things? And then really you get this groundswell of, of support around you. It's, it's pretty powerful when you point that anywhere. And I thought well, if we could do that with the firm, get that groundswell of, of support, we could really enhance the culture of HOK, bring, bring us tighter together. So I think we wanted to dissuade people of the idea that this was going to be a retreat where you sit in a conference room and you take notes and you debate. This was a, more of a special occasion. So as opposed to having a better speaker or having a, a more engaging facilitator or have a clever topic, uh, we took a very precious day, the, the, a whole day, and we convened everybody in, in the lobby and said, today we're not going to work like that. Today we're going to go do something for some other people. Everybody got a t-shirt of a different color. We were put on buses and driven out of Puerto Vallarta and up into the mountains to a very poor village that had a little school. And the school was in disrepair and needed a lot of elbow grease. And we were the elbow grease. We were divided into work groups. We worked with the parents, mostly the fathers of the, and this was grade school, so the little kids. And uh, I was on a team and it didn't matter if you were the CEO or a new emerging leader, we were all on the same team. So we got hot, we got sweaty, we got dirty. Uh, my team assembled playground equipment um, with instructions in Spanish, I might add, 
And uh, so we had some head scratching and some struggle to understand what to do. Another group actually built a small school addition, a room out of prefabricated parts. Another group built a maze out of uh, a garden so that the children could play in a maze. Another group was the painting group. And they not only painted the school building, but they painted a beautiful mural on one side uh, that depicted the helpfulness from the people at HOK to the people in the school. I was struck by how many talented people there are. We had one man at HOK. We needed to weld two beams together. And there was a welding equipment there. He climbed up there, put on his welder's helmet and welded those. I was so surprised because I didn't realize that these people had all this diversity of knowledge and talent. At lunchtime, we took a break. It was hot, uh, but the women of the village brought out a bunch of food and we all ate together. And uh, toward the end of the day, as we were wrapping up, all the children were lined up. They, the children had not been allowed in the school because of the construction. All these little children, ages uh, must be kindergarten through fourth grade or something like that, with these big bright eyes were looking up at us, couldn't wait to get into that schoolyard and play on the equipment. And finally, the teacher opened the gate and it was worth all the heat and the sweat and the dirt to see those kids streaming into that schoolyard. It was just the most wonderful thing. And we all got back on the bus, hot, tired, and happy. But we felt that that was the most important way to set the tone, not only for the meetings, but for what's important at HOK. Because at the end of the day, it is about helping people. It is about recognizing the privilege that we have, uh, how privileged we are. And uh, once you go through an experience like that, we felt pretty strongly that you, would, you wouldn't look at your partners the same ever again. Once you see them welding and sawing and, you know, pouring concrete and sweating and, you know, sort of uh, all the masks that you put on to go to work every day kind of melt away. We felt like that would be a great introduction to that meeting, which it was. I think it really solidified a lot of relationships there. And I think it reinforced the culture that we're, we're not going to spend money to have parties and that particular gesture. And then the work in Mexico really spoke to the soul of HOK. You know, Bill V always talked about that. What's the soul of HOK. And I realized that once you, if you have that soul kind of, if you stay close to your soul, the rest ain't easy, but it gives it purpose. And it, it does separate us from why am I not working at another firm? Just kind of just like this. I do think that we had a binding experience from that day. That was something I will never forget. I think anyone who was there had that same experience, Ricardo. So thank you for that. No, I, I, I have to give it to, to you and, and to the XCOM at that time because you did something that requires a lot of, um, you have to be secure in your person to do this and you gave it over to more junior people. And you know that gesture alone, it was, wow, they are handing this to us we better not mess this up. I mean, we've got a great opportunity because if we do well, there might there might be other things they might do for us, right? If we don't do it well, it might solidify the old ideas of, well, it's got to, you know, more senior people have to do this kind of thing. And, and uh, so th there was some built-in sort of incentive for us there. By the end of the time in Puerto Vallarta, people were, that hardly knew one another, were best buddies. 
from different offices and different market practices and so on. And uh, for years afterward, all you had to say was PV for Puerto Vallarta. And people knew if they were there, the shared experience of Puerto Vallarta knit that leadership group together in a way that uh, was priceless, just priceless. Well, you can see the transformation that's happening with the company culture at HOK as you as you tell these stories. What was the final most important step that you took to restore HOK culture? Yes, and Mark, I will have to say that maybe we could have thought of this earlier. But maybe the conditions weren't yet right for us to take this final step. And that was this. We needed to incentivize the leaders in the firm, people who led offices, people who led market practices, to collaborate with each other, to help each other. And we needed to incentivize. We talked about, we wanted people to be, to support great design, sustainable design. We wanted people to give clients great service and we wanted them to make money. But the only thing we were doing with the leaders in the way of a bonus, and you know, bonuses talk with a loud voice. So the only thing we were incentivizing with our bonus was profitability. That incentive was powerful in a way, but it was also a disincentive to collaboration. So we said, we have to change the incentives within the bonus pool. And we had to completely reorganize the bonus pool. We still kept the math of the bonus pool for each office, but not the office leadership. Office leaders and market practice leaders were put in a new bucket called a leader bonus pool. And a certain amount of the money that came that we decided we could afford for the bonus went into the leader bonus pool. And then every single one of those leaders was scrutinized and compared to the other leaders, the designers compared to the designers, one office to another. Are you doing good design work? Are you uh, sustainable enough? Are you taking good care of your clients? And so the bonuses began to be allocated based not just on that one factor, which was math, but by judgment. And uh, we got to be pretty rigorous about it. We realized we couldn't just sit back and make a judgment about somebody that we didn't interact with. So that meant each XCOM member had to be a mentor and annual reviewer of about 10 or 12 or 15 leaders around the firm. And so we divided up the leaders in some logical way, like Bill Valentine and Bill Helmuth got the designers to review and so on. Uh, I got a lot of the managing principles of offices to review. And the feedback from us to those leaders was, we're now going to evaluate you based on something besides profits. Are you collaborative? If you are profitable and uncollaborative, your bonus is going to go down. And if you're, if you're not supporting great design or you're not supporting green design and so on, your bonus will go down. And we began to redistribute our bonus monies based on those criteria. And it took a couple of years for the leaders to finally understand what we were doing, even though we had plainly said so. When they finally got their bonus, and I can remember somebody getting a bonus that they thought was inadequate and calling me saying, how dare you, you know, look at all that money I made. Well, as I explained, yes, you made a lot of money, but you, you weren't collaborative or you didn't support being of great service to your clients. So eventually everybody got the idea. There were a few that didn't, that left, 
and there were a few that didn't get it and resisted it that we asked to leave. And when the leaders were in harness with that, everybody else in the firm came right along. It was no problem with uh, the people that were in the offices or in the market practices. It was getting that 100 plus leaders uh, to understand that we were really serious about this. I could imagine that a program like that um, could be difficult at times, that it's sort of self-selecting people to leave the firm because they're not right for the culture or not right for the way that HOK is running. But also I could imagine that it's very gratifying when you get a bonus that's more than just profit, that there's a group of leaders that are saying, you are doing a good job and here's some compensation, additional compensation, uh, an award, a reward for doing that, that additional effort. Well, yes, you can imagine the debate inside the XCOM when we sat down to review the leaders and the arguing and debating back and forth about, well, so-and-so, you know, and sometimes people got bonuses for losing money because they used their integrity to finish a project well, even though the, the project was uh, going to be a loss, instead of trying to rush it through and eke out a profit uh, and not and not be of good service. So once people understood that, it changed everything. Uh, it changed everything. People began to say, oh, I can actually get rewarded for doing the things that they've been preaching about, helping each other to succeed, finding a good person to work on that next project, even if that person is not in my office. That's true collaboration. So it did have the positive effect, and it was that final step that got us to that third level in the pyramid. So you've reached that final or that third level of the pyramid, true collaboration. Can you remind us the four levels of the pyramid uh, and talk about how long it took to get to that third uh, level of the pyramid, true collaboration? Yes, the foundation is the strong board having strong unified leadership that supports all the rest of the steps. Without a strong board, you can't have the next piece, which is great operations. Great operations means consistently making profits, collecting money, and uh, having the core services provided by the center, accounting and HR and uh, IT, having those also consolidated and operating smoothly. And it wasn't possible I would say, to get great true collaboration until everybody was on an even keel and, and making decent profits and so on, was not stressed by feeling like they're underwater and they'll do anything. But to get to true collaboration after the collaboration had been eroded away took, I would say, a full eight years. That was the, the big prize and the hardest level to achieve. Uh, but once it was achieved, then we were really, a, then we were something. Then we were really a, a unified firm again, much as the firm was when I first joined in St. Louis back so many years before. Could you talk a little bit about, because this took eight years to go through this process, to just to get to true collaboration. Can you talk a little bit about the determination that it takes and the patience that you must have in order to get to that level? Well, yes. I mean, determination is a nice word. I would use the word grit. This idea of collaboration takes courage, takes grit, because at first it seemed impossible. And uh, I started just with the XCOM. 
just to get the XCOM to all agree that this was really important. And from there, we went to the board of directors. And at the XCOM, we had some big debates about how important it was. And uh, I stayed at that um, and didn't let any of us slide off to the side and be and give a, a half answer. Well, some collaborations, okay, except when it's my office. Because without that, uh, we could never have brought the whole firm along. So it started with the XCOM, leader to leader. And that once that happened, the leaders began to all understand, oh, this is, this is a new day. So that was a wonderful thing to see unfold, but it did take years to do. And uh, we just stayed at it. But finally, the view got to be pretty good up on that third level of the pyramid, Mark. It was worth it. And the, the top of the pyramid is dreams. Is dreams. And we'll, we'll talk about that soon. That is, once you've got a unified leadership and you've got good operations that's not on automatic, there's always work to do, but that is uh, well understood and uh, that you, you reach or achieve your goals for operations routinely. And once you've got this great culture of people helping each other to succeed, again, what the founder said, collaboration inside is the best way to compete outside. Uh, once we got those three, we were ready. To, we had earned the right to dream. Yeah. So what, what are the lessons that we should be taking away today? Well, they're all about culture. And company culture is definitely things, something that is established by the leaders. It doesn't spring from uh, nowhere. It comes from the leadership. The leaders have to decide what they want the culture to be, and they have to work at it to make sure that people understand that if they're transgressing or they're not following the culture, that it, they're corrected. And um, company culture needs to be reinforced every day by actions, not just words. And for too many years, we had talked about collaboration and cooperation. Nothing was done. If somebody wasn't collaborative, they got away with it, basically. And once people saw that, well, the whole enterprise fell apart in terms of collaboration. Well, why should I collaborate? He's not collaborating. And so getting that put back into place was the, the hardest job and the biggest prize because it, we proved that once the collaborative culture is lost, it doesn't mean it's gone forever. If you're determined and if you really work at it, you can restore it by the steps that I've outlined in this podcast today, getting people together, getting people that don't even necessarily know or like each other together. And they find, oh, we're a lot alike. We can be good friends uh, that we've done at the core boards at the, or at the retreats or sharing a common heritage with the HOK stock that you own. And then finally, the big step, which was getting the bonuses organized for leaders so that leaders were bonused on something besides the objective of profitability, but also subjective collaboration being foremost. To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Build Smart. Patrick angles to put the firm in a better position for success by finally breaking free from the weights of its debts. Listen in next week to find out how any firm with debts or obligations can finally get out from under them. So within a few months of becoming CEO, 
and beginning to work at getting the office to, to perform better, our collections improved. And that was because we had these regular XCOM jobs to call offices and say, have you collected the money from such and so client? And collections improved first, and then profitability gradually increased. And as they did, our cash flow got better. Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcasts, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments. Hi, I'm Demetrius Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals, solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say, now we are in peace with this. But (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes, and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday, because spaces shape society. Spaces.